0: The title of this evening's talk is Metta, The Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves. By liberation of the Self, through love, we will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. So this evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation which is classically called a Brahma-vihara <clears throat> divine abiding the radiant warmth and openness of metta unconditional loving kindness and acceptance unconditional friendship the experience of an open-hearted connection, that isn't fraught with clinging and attachment, and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. The unconditional quality of mind and heart, this particular unconditional quality of mind and heart, arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and kindness. So, beginning with an old story, it's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who uh, went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three month rainy season retreat. A forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered in fact to build uh, 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rains retreat and who were also happy to keep the monks alms bowls filled uh, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight meditation, vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived in this same forest, became fearful of the monks and began to feel quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't visiting the forest for just a day or two. So these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks uh, leave what they considered to be their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi broke their concentration and disrupted their mindfulness. Some even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale to which the Buddha responded My beloved monks go back to exactly this same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to the forest. And again saying it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was this, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection." And it's said that it was at that point that the Buddha offered the metta-teaching and practice. Out of their great, great respect for the Buddha, the monks uh, didn't dare contradict his wishes, so armed with the metta-teaching and practice they went back to the forest and for a while continuing to experience feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time they diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile uh, towards the monks their anger and Resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monk's metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience, along with a sense of being connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for the devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular dangers such as tigers and poisonous snakes that might be lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing samatha, and insight, Vipassana concentration and Vipassana practice again with, with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all became arhants, they all every five, one of them, five hundred of them, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for beings to connect, to connect, for for beings connection, for us to connect. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or a group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They're, of course, course important on one level. But within the incredible radiant energy of warmth, that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human-kindness of metta is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then, at some point, radiating this quality out to the world around us. The experience of sunshine up here in the mountains is really a wonderful metaphor for, uh, for this to take place and to partake of. So, if you haven't yet uh, done so, please uh, partake once the sun comes back out again. So where does this capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. And in fact, living beings, all forms of living beings, literally can't survive very long without some degree of care and kindness being given to them. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely, so a very ordinary, mundane example. A few days before the retreat began, I went to the post office to pick up my mail. And just to say that this experience happens to me regularly at the Rancho Estetaos post office. So I, I went there, uh, walked up to the door that goes into the post office, and someone in front of me opened the door and held the door open for me to go in <clears throat> I didn't know this person and I had never seen this person I've never seen this person before and we looked at each other and smiled and I, I thanked her for uh, for doing this and a very uh, warm connection between us was there she smiled back and there was this warm connection so just that that's unconditional kindness the warmth of the similar unconditional kindness here in the retreat. Someone holding the door open for you to pass through. And of course each of us has experienced kindness with people that we know, with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a more overt and stronger energy. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we have been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. So it's a circle really It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give it's, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving-kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make, and that we make. And it has an effect on us, it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings, compassion, karuna, appreciative empathetic joy, mudita, and equanimity, upeka. It's also the capacity of heart, of mind, that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold, to unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness and patience with each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and process of liberation when I was in China in 1986 I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for meta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible boundless, empty, where from, where to, and yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist texts it's often spoken of as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill-will in relationship to all the phenomena of one's body and mind. However, they're manifesting moment to moment. And the absence of ill-will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning, for instance, no comparing of oneself in relationship to others. No comparison. No conceit. No pride. No self-depreciation. No self-judgment. And no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions Here in retreat, how often might we think that maybe the person sitting next to us or maybe the person on the other side of the room, how often might we think that, well, their practice is really so much better than mine. Or maybe the comparing mind says, well, that person is really not practicing nearly as well as I am. That felt judgment, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, etc., etc. Obviously this isn't metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other. The heart, the mind, is contracted. The me-self looms large. If we see and feel this closely we find that it's uncomfortable, quite uncomfortable. So we mindfully recognize and acknowledge this too is part of our practice. This too is part of our practice without any judgment involved. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta. And also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self. What we're identified with and attached to either in a positive way or in a negative way as our self. Our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, beliefs, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart-mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those who we're close to in our lives, those who it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful, or may be amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, mind that's filled with metta holds the possibility of, of a capacity for what could be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect to and care for any being, all beings. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti kept a meditation journal and this is from his journal Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things It's not an intellectual affair but when the mind enters into the heart the mind has quite a different quality It's really then limitless It's a sense of living in a vast space, where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being and patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously as you're practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are some of you primarily specifically practicing Metta, others practicing towards cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention while others uh, uh... cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. And maybe some for some of you some mix of all of this. Some of you may also be working specifically with metta, uh, maybe even unwittingly, but maybe consciously, uh, specifically with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. With all of this, you're learning that the cultivation of metta aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, There's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through our mind and heart and body begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration and mindfulness. Someone once asked the Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, What can make me love? And his response when asked that question was, You are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with, or connect with beings who maybe act in ways that we might not like, or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over the other with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up to and including this very moment when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world, more peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world and periods when the world has been, is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger said this, There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis and the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never ever know. I'd like to spend a few moments now exploring some expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that probably many of us expect metta or have expected metta to be a feeling, feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that in fact we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Most certainly, sometimes, metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger. In any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect with oneself and in relationship to others. Directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, um, one of the collections of the uh, Buddha's teachings. The story is of Sariputta's lion's roar and this demonstrates what I've just been uh, uh, exploring with you very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And the story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to Uh, disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the Sutta, Sariputta's lions roar. On one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati. I wish to leave for a country journey. The Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha saying, the Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, go monk and call the Venerable Sariputta saying, the master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden and the Venerable Sariputta responded saying, yes friend. Then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogolana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverencers, come. For today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, one of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology the venerable sariputta responded lord i remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to bhikkhu rahula the buddha's son now this you've heard this discourse this the four elements that you, know, you gave to bhikkhu rahula when he was 18 years old you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practiced mindfulness and loving, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances upon the earth or foul, unclean substances, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean. Yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire, Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the the distasteful. And yet, for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet, for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day A monk who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk." Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint." And then he turned to the venerable Sariputta saying, forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. (laughs) See, the Buddha did have a sense of humor. (laughs) And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. Then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines. A really powerful medicine our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a big huge smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago now I read a book that was about and by uh, a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family, so he never attended school and never learned how to read until the age of 98 when he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98 and then he wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to read uh, just a little bit uh, from this book. At one point uh, in the book George is having a conversation with a man named Richard. And Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So this is the conversation. Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. And George speaking. That's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back. Everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that life is good, just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help someone instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts the cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a mind, a heart that's steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue just a little bit more with our 102-year-old Bodhisatta, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South, growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually, the book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. (coughs) And This is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the, dogs, the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me, she just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Later in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people, I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, <clears throat> the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what, we, what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing this evening's talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman Named Suanne Marie Big Crow. <clears throat> Suanne was born on march fifteenth, nineteen seventy four on the Pine Ridge, Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three bedroom house. Suanne's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters had to always be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and uh, chaperoned kinds. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were out. So Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to this small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Suanne was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so suanne called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups, and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach, who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Rawl said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. At one time or another, they did them all. Cross country running track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball, when Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand, so she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound, so variety. For variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that is centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Leeds, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s the Pine Ridge Lady Thorps went to lead went to lead to play a basketball game Suan was a full member of the team by then she was a freshman 14 years old getting ready in the locker room the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans they were yelling fake indian war cries the usual plan for pregame warm the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to the bench at courtside. And after that the home team would come out and do the same and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. (coughs) As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, The heckling got louder. Some of the fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with a fake Indian drumming, with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some bumped into each other. Suanne so Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. So Anne dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie to Corey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at the center court in the gym at lead and I agree that was Sue Ann's lion's roar and a little um, <coughs> poem by Hafiz He calls it, the sun never says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation, do what seems to come naturally, and then after the fact realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural effortless expression of a clearly focused mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the same time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal. You might say to a friend who asks how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But in a way, it is a big deal. Because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and it changes the lives of everyone you encounter. So closing the talk this evening with um, a valentine, a poem that I got from a student a number of years ago it's called "This Is Love," and with this uh, Valentine came uh, a little sticker, a round red sticker uh, that was stuck on the top of it—the um, kind you could peel off and stick on something else—and mm-hmm. uh, and in the in the circle, uh, in the middle of the circle of this round red uh, sticker, was. Uh, uh, called was just written love in white letters and this is the poem take this tiny label I think it was this is love is was written inside the circle take this tiny label stick it on your dining table stick it on your favorite book stick it where you always look stick it on some brand new shoes stick it on the evening news stick it on a broken heart Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror. Yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Congress floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.